0: chapter 24 part 1 of a short history of scotland by andrew lang Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain chapter 24 charles i part 1 the reign of charles i opened with every sign of the tempests which were to follow england and scotland were both seething with religious fears and hatreds both parties in england puritans and anglicans could be satisfied with nothing less than complete domination in england the extreme puritans with their yearning after the Genevan Presbyterian discipline, had been threatening civil war even under Elizabeth. James had treated them with a high hand and a proud heart. Under Charles, wedded to a Jezebel, a Catholic wife, Henrietta Maria, the Puritan hatred of such prelates as Laud expressed itself in threats of murder, while heavy fines and cruel mutilations were inflicted by the party in power. The Protestant panic— The fear of a violent restoration of Catholicism in Scotland never slumbered. In Scotland Catholics were at this time bitterly persecuted, and believed that a Presbyterian general massacre of them all was being organized. By the people the Anglican bishops and the prayer-book were as much detested as priests and the Mass. When Charles placed six prelates in his privy council, and recognized the Archbishop of St. Andrews, Spottiswoode, as first in precedence among his subjects, the nobles were angry and jealous. Charles would not do away with the infatuated articles of Perth. James, as he used to say, had governed Scotland by the pen through the Privy Council. Charles knew much less than James of the temper of the Scots, among whom he had never come since his infancy, and his Privy Council with six bishops was apt to be even more than commonly subservient. In Scotland as in England the expenses of national defence were a cause of anger, and the mismanagement of military affairs by the king's favorite buckingham increased the irritation it was brought to a head in scotland by the act of revocation under which all church lands and crown lands bestowed since fifteen forty two were to be restored to the crown this act once more united in opposition the nobles and the preachers since fifteen ninety six they had not been in harmony in fifteen eighty seven as we saw James the Sixth had annexed much of the old ecclesiastical property to the crown, but he had granted most of it to nobles and barons as temporal lordships. Now, by Charles, the temporal lords who held such lands were menaced. The judges, lords of session, who would have defended their interests, were removed from the Privy Council, March sixteen twenty six, and in August the temporal lords remonstrated with the king through deputations. In fact, they took little harm redeeming their holdings at the rate of ten years' purchase. The main result was that landowners were empowered to buy the tithes on their own lands from the multitude of titulars of tithes, 1629, who had rapaciously and oppressively extorted these tenths of the harvest every year. The ministers had a safe provision at last, secured on the tithes, in Scotland styled tins, but this did not reconcile most of them to bishops and to the act of Perth. Several of the bishops were, in fact, latitudinarian, or Arminian in doctrine, wanderers from the severity of Knox and Calvin. With them began, perhaps, the moderatism which later invaded the Kirk, though their ideal slumbered during the Civil War, to awaken again with the teaching of Archbishop Leighton under the Restoration. Meanwhile the nobles and gentry had been alarmed and mulcted, and were ready to join hands with the Kirk in its day of resistance. In June 1633 Charles at last visited his ancient kingdom, accompanied by Laud. His subjects were alarmed and horrified by the sight of prelates in lawn-sleeves, candles in chapel, and even a tapestry showing the crucifixion. To this the bishops are said to have bowed, plain idolatry. In the Parliament of June 18th the eight representatives of each estate, who were practically all-powerful as lords of the Articles, were chosen not from each estate by its own members, but on a method instituted, or rather revived, by James the Sixth in 1609. The nobles made the choice from the bishops, the bishops from the nobles, and the elected sixteen from barons and burghers. The twenty-four were all thus episcopally minded, they drew up the bills, and the bills were voted on without debate." The grant of supply made in these circumstances was liberal, and James's ecclesiastical legislation, including the sanction of the rags of Rome, worn by bishops, was ratified. Remonstrances from the ministers of the old Kirk party were disregarded, and, the thin edge of the wedge, the English liturgy was introduced in the royal chapel of Holyrood, and in that of St. Salvador's College, St. Andrew's, where it has been read once on a funeral occasion in recent years. In 1634 to 1635, on the information of Archbishop Spottiswood, Lord Balmerino was tried for treason because he possessed a supplication or petition, which the lords of the minority, in the late Parliament, had drawn up but not presented. He was found guilty but spared. The proceedings showed of what nature the bishops were, and alienated and alarmed the populace and the nobles and gentry. A remonstrance in manly spirit by Drummond of Hawthornden, the poet, was disregarded. In 1635 Charles authorized a book of canons, heralding the imposition of a liturgy, which scarcely varied, and when it varied, was thought to differ for the worse, from that of the Church of England. By these canons, the most nakedly despotic of innovations, the preachers could not use their sword of excommunication without the assent of the bishops. James the sixth had ever regarded with horror and dread the license of conceived prayers, spoken by the minister, and believed to be extemporary or directly inspired. There is an old story that one minister prayed that James might break his leg. Certainly prayers for sanctified plagues on that prince were publicly offered, at the will of the minister. Even a very firm Presbyterian, the Lord of Brody, when he had once heard the Anglican service in London, confided to his journal that he had suffered much from the nonsense of conceived prayers. They were a dangerous weapon, in Charles's opinion. He was determined to abolish them, rather that he might be free from the agitation of the pulpit than for reasons of ritual, and to proclaim his own headship of the Kirk of King Christ. This, in the opinion of the great majority of the preachers and populace, was flat blasphemy, an assumption of the crown honors of Christ. The liturgy was an ill-mumbled mass, the Mass was idolatry, and idolatry was a capital offence. However strange these convictions may appear, they were essential parts of the national belief. Yet with the most extreme folly, Charles, acting like Henry Eighth as his own Pope, thrust the canons and this liturgy upon the Carrickan country. No sentimental arguments can palliate such open tyranny. The liturgy was to be used in St. Giles's church, the town-kirk of Edinburgh, cleansed and restored by Charles himself, on July 23, 1637. The result was a furious brawl, begun by the women, of all Presbyterians the fiercest, and, it was said, by men disguised as women. A gentleman was struck on the air by a woman for the offence of saying Amen, and the famous Jenny Geddes is traditionally reported to have thrown her stool at the dean's head. The service was interrupted, the bishop was the mark of stones, and the bishop's war the civil war began in this brawl james the 6th being on the spot had thoroughly quieted edinburgh after a more serious riot on december 17 1596 but charles was far away the city had not to fear the loss of the court and its custom as on the earlier occasion the removal of the council to linlithgow in october 1637 was a trifle and the council had to face a storm of petition from all classes of the community Their prayer was that the liturgy should be withdrawn. From the country, multitudes of all classes flocked into Edinburgh and formed themselves into a committee of public safety, the Four Tables, containing sixteen persons. End of chapter twenty four, part one. Read by Sibella Denton. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit librivox.org.